This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody. I hope you're doing well. Yes, we're almost there. The year 2020 will soon be ushered out the door, folks. It's time to celebrate the holidays and the beginning of a new year. It couldn't have come fast enough, if you want my opinion. But don't get me started. Anyway, I think we've got a great show for you today. Today, we'll be issuing our holiday book review and recommending books that make perfect gifts for the native gardener in your life. Today, we'll also be interviewing Dan Jaffe Wilder, head propagator of native plants at Norcross Wildlife Sanctuary in Wales, Massachusetts. He'll be talking to us about growing native plants, including how to kill your lawn. I think of Dan as a modern-day Henry David Thoreau. It's obvious he has a deep connection to nature. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of native plants, yet has a great way of explaining native gardening in plain English that all of us can understand. And he's also a really nice guy. It's hard to believe, but we only have one more episode after this one, and that is the end of Season 1 of Bird Hugger. We'll be celebrating the holidays in a big way in the next episode, episode number 13, and then we start Season 2 in January. In Season 2, we'll be bringing you lots of new and interesting topics related to birds, as well as proven methods of restoring native habitat. And we'll be interviewing the leading experts in bird behavior, wildlife rescue and rehabilitation, as well as native gardening. 2021 is already shaping up to be a great year. And now it's time for our holiday book review segment. Today I'd like to talk about holiday books for the gardener. Fill your favorite gardener's Christmas stockings with these latest reads on native habitat restoration. There are many new gardening books hitting the market, and some of them are turning traditional gardening on its head, by steering away from formal lawns with foreign ornamentals and instead focusing on restoring the native habitats in our front and backyards. There are five books I highly recommend. The first one is Native Plants for New England Gardens by Dan Jaffe and Mark Richardson, published by Globe Pequot Press. This new book is one of the most important reference guides to be published in a long time regarding native habitat restoration. Jaffe and Richardson both helped run the New England Wildflower Society in Framingham, Massachusetts, although the update is Dan Jaffe Wilder is now working as Chief Propagator at Norcross Wildlife Sanctuary in Wales, Massachusetts. You'll be hearing an interview with him in just a few minutes. In the book, they explore 100 perennials that are especially rugged, beautiful, and essential to restoring biodiversity to rural and urban areas. Both Jaffe and Richardson urge New Englanders to stop thinking of their front lawns as a sterile landscape that must be adorned with foreign and exotic plantings, and to consider planting native plants. 
This book includes not just plants, but also trees, ferns, grasses, and vines that support wildlife and biodiversity, and is written in plain, easy-to-understand language, which is perfect for the beginning native gardener. It's loaded with beautiful full-color photographs. The second book is A New Garden Ethic, Cultivating Defiant Compassion for an Uncertain Future by Benjamin Vogt, published by New Society Publishers. Author of the best-selling book, Sleep, Creep, Leap, The First Three Years of a Nebraska Garden, Vogt has this time written a psychological treatise that explores the emotional distress that urbanites can sometimes experience without daily exposure to nature. We are genetically programmed to love the wild, he says, but overpopulation and crowded cities with their concrete, asphalt, and tall buildings are robbing us of the tranquility of forested areas. What better way to cure oneself of nature-deprived malaise than by gardening? The author urges gardener activism in the local community by planting native trees and plants anywhere you can, including rooftops, thereby issuing a welcome to birds and pollinators and a big thumbs down to projected mass extinction. The third selection is Garden Revolution, How Our Landscapes Can Be a Source of Environmental Change, by Larry Weiner and Thomas Christopher, published by Timber Press. Traditional American gardening doesn't make any sense, say authors Weiner and Christopher. Your yard contains several different microclimates, and the odds are pretty good you will end up trying to force perennials you bought from a nursery to survive in a climate to which they are not accustomed. And, of course, they will end up dying. Instead, these two accomplished, award-winning horticulturalists are suggesting you try planting seeds in all of the climates in your yard and allow the plants to choose which areas they would most like to grow. Sounds like a simple idea, but it is truly revolutionary. This forward-thinking method will certainly save you a lot of time and money. They also urge gardeners to choose native plants. This book is also loaded with beautiful full-color photographs. Number four is Grow Native, Bringing Natural Beauty to Your Garden by Laura Steiner, published by Cool Springs Press. It used to be all the rage in the 1950s and 1960s to plant exotic trees like Chinese lilac and Japanese maples in the yard. The horticultural industry marketed foreign plantings as a welcome change from the so-called ho-hum native trees and shrubs, which were relegated to the back rooms of garden centers. The problem is nurseries have been selling exclusively non-natives for decades, and now we as a nation have reached a tipping point where wildlife and pollinators are rapidly declining due to lack of native habitat. Steiner, the former editor of Northern Gardening magazine, thinks it is not too late to save our birds and insects and extols the virtue of responsibility that each of us has to prevent a total ecological collapse. And finally, number five, planting in a post-wild world, designing plant communities for resilient landscapes by Claudia West and Thomas Rayner published by Timber Press. This book is truly a call to action. While West and Rayner, both highly accomplished ecological landscape design experts, admit terrible damage has been done to the native habitats of the United States due to greedy developers and overuse of non-natives, they still inspire the reader with hope and optimism by suggesting that gardeners use a combination of traditional perennials mixed with wild native plantings in their yards. 
The combined effect is the beauty of nativars for colorscaping and true native plants to help pollinators and birds. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Dan Jaffe Wilder. He is the author of the book, Native Plants for New England Gardens. I just gave a review of his book a few moments earlier. He earned a degree in botany from the University of Maine. He was granted an advanced certificate in native plant horticulture and design from the New England Wildflower Society, now known as the Native Plant Trust. He worked for years as the native plant propagator at the New England Wildflower Society's Nassami Farm in Waitley, Massachusetts. He now works at Norcross Wildlife Sanctuary in Wales, Massachusetts, as chief horticulturist and propagator of native plants. Dan, welcome to Bird Hugger. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate being here. Yeah, it's great having you here. So now, a lot of our listeners on Bird Hugger are just starting native gardening. They're very new to it, and they have, of course, a lot of questions, and there's some confusion. Could you kind of decode or demystify why it's so important to plant native plants? Sure. We could do that over the next probably six to 12 hours if we wanted to really dig into it. I think the simple answer is that native plants build habitat. You know, when you're planting native plants on the landscape, cultivating native plants, you know, removing invasives and allowing native plants to thrive, there are a variety of different life forms that then will feed upon those native plants. Um, You find plenty of instances of birds directly feeding on native plants. You also find instances where they build a a greater ecosystem kind of from, you know, small steps up. You know, for example, you may have a native plant that's fed upon by a caterpillar that is then eaten by the bird that is then, say, eaten by the raptor. And it kind of moves all the way up that trophic scale. And you can really start building habitat and and kind of um, a biodiverse ecosystem. The, The kind of basis of that is going to be those native plants. Now, I did want to mention your book. I know, you know, the book came out in 2018. I had to laugh when I was reading your book because in the beginning, in the introduction, you talk about how, you know, the average gardener is really subjected to quite a a seduction of marketing, if you will, when when you enter the garden center. I don't think it's an accident that they put all these huge, brightly colored blooming annuals at the front entrance. It's sort of you know, I've had that experience before where I, I walked into the garden center with a piece of paper on my hand that says, buy only native plants. <laughs> and when I come out, it's like I've blacked out. I wake up and I look in the back of my Subaru Forester and there are two dozen six packs of impatiens and petunias. How does that happen? <laughs> when it comes down to it, there's, there's people like yourself, like I'm assuming a number of your listeners who are kind of either clued in or or becoming clued in or getting interested to one extent or another in this kind of idea of an ecological garden. And then there's, you know, a lot of other people who, you know, came to gardening from a point of view where I could make my landscape pretty. And that's kind of the end of it for them. What I think is phenomenal is there's no reason to give up on that second one to have the first. You know, you can have an absolutely exquisitely beautiful garden that also happens to be a part of the local ecosystem. But when it comes down to it, you know, Bedding annuals are cheap. They bloom all season long. They're they're showy. And for someone who's not really into gardening beyond the point where they think I want to put something in the ground that's going to look pretty, you know, you walk into the nursery and you see something, you know, blooming vibrant red and it catches your eye and you tend to take it home. 
you know, native plants are a, a growing interest amongst the, the nursery trade kind of in general. There are, you know, the, the people who are, who are the native plant enthusiasts have been doing it for a while, but the rest of the industry is now starting to really kind of catch up. And so you've been finding more and more native plants kind of playing that front of the show sort of thing that they, they may not have done in the past. Um, and some of it is going to take a, a kind of a, a change within the nursery setting. In many cases, it might change a, a you know, take a change in nursery management. Someone who's willing to say, okay, you know, this, this cardinal flower looks absolutely fantastic now. Let's move that to the front of the nursery. It looks even better than the bedding annuals. But in another month's time, let's put it back on its bench for the people who are looking for it because it's past now. Let's put the ironweed up front. That's looking really great right now in this kind of cycle of different native species. When it comes down to it, there are, there are not too many plants that are going to bloom all season long from an environmental or from a, a habitat point of view. That really doesn't make a lot of sense from a plant's point of view. That's a whole lot of work. And, and frankly, if you're blooming all season long, does it mean your flowers aren't really doing their job? I don't know if you could put it a plant's point of view, but the goal of a flower is to be get pollinated and produce seed. And once that happens, it kind of moves along. There are certain plants that really can show off quite nicely throughout the season, but I, I stopped telling people to look for things that bloom all season long and tell them to look for things that are interesting all season long. That becomes easy when you can have, you know, multiples of plants. You can have, you know, spring bloomers, summer bloomers, maybe late fall stuff. But even for certain single species, look at something like a service berry or a viburnum or a choke berry. You've got a flower in spring. You've got a showy berry in the summertime. You've got vibrant fall color. I mean, you've got three full seasons of interest right there. It may not bloom all season long, but it still looks phenomenal all season long. And that can make a lot of the, you know, the gardeners who are looking for a pretty garden happy. And then the habitat that they build happens to just be kind of a nice secondary piece. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a pretty garden. I just don't want it to come at the cost of building a healthy ecosystem. Right. And that's what I like so much about your book, Native Plants for New England Gardens, is it's easy to read. It's really, you know, for anyone to understand. It's not, you know, written in complicated language. And you list 100 native plants to grow, some of which are just breathtakingly beautiful. And I really like the way you describe each plant. And I think it's perfect for beginners. I think it's perfect well, we, for people just starting out who really need to understand why that particular plant is so important to the ecosystem. I mean, I really enjoyed reading about you know, the native cherry tree which a lot of people consider lawn care people use that term junk tree, especially with box elders and native cherries. And, and I think that's finally turning around. I don't know what you think about that, but I'm hearing that word junk used a lot less lately. And I'm seeing a lot more people safeguarding their native trees from landscape companies. <laughs> yeah, I think junk tree is just a, a kind of a derogatory way of saying pioneer species. You know, it tends to be a, a label we stick on species that are very good at, um, you know, kind of taking what would be an open, you know, maybe meadow-like habitat and start the process of moving it back towards forest. These are species that have evolved to, you know, seed in quickly, grow quickly, um, produce flowers and, and future seeds quickly, but then also make the way for the longer-lived trees that might come in next, whether they be oaks or firs or whatever happens to be in your ecosystem. It's kind of a running joke amongst us native plant folks that meadow in New England, at least, is just another word for not yet forest. That's our kind of ecotype in this area. We tend to have forests. 
it's actually part of the reason why I do a lot of canopy work. Um, we're, we're constantly, it's ironic that as a native plant enthusiast, I spend a lot of time cutting down trees. Um, we're constantly trying to build diverse ecosystems. So if, if you know, I work at Norcross, we have 8,000 acres and probably good, you know, 7,500 of them are forest. So if we could turn that to maybe 6,500 as forest and build, you know, a thousand acres of meadow and maybe, a, you know, 500 acres of, of open wetland and try and diversify your habitat as much as possible, that's a, you know, really kind of fantastic goal. It's something that works well when you've got, you know, 8,000 acres to work with. It's a little less of a usable thing when you're talking about, you know, the, the backyard gardener. In that case, it's, it's really less about cutting down trees and probably much more about planting trees and, and making sure they're, you know, good trees to have on your landscape. Our native cherries are fantastic trees um, ecologically. And from a tasty point of view, the native black cherry, which is our most common one, is really quite a tasty species. I've been trying to convince people to grow more of the, uh, the, the Virginia bird cherries lately, Prudus virginiana, sometimes called choke cherry. It's a shrubby species. Um, it usually tops out. If you find a really, really old one, it might have gotten to 15 feet tall. But most of the time you see them in the kind of five to eight foot range. Um, they grow on roadsides, drainage ditches, crappy soil areas. Really nice if you want the ecological value of a cherry, but you don't have space for a full-size tree. That bird cherry is, is really a wonderful species, and you find so many different life forms that will feed on the cherries. Plenty of birds coming in and feeding on the cherries directly, but also lots and lots of bees and flies and, and various different flying pollinators visiting the flowers and a whole plethora of different native specialist caterpillars that will feed on those leaves. Cherries are simply great plants. Right. So I wanted to ask you, you know, there, um, just in talking about some of the potential obstacles to people growing native plants, I mean, one, of course, is what we just spoke about, which is the, the seductive marketing of your average garden center, leading you over to the annuals. The other, <laughs> those flashy, showy gardening catalogs that arrive in the mail in the dead of winter when you're a gardener going berserk waiting for spring to come. So that's another kind of form of seductive marketing. And those catalogs are typically just loaded with non-native perennials and annuals. But there's also the question of availability. A lot of people are finding it hard to find true native plants, especially in New England. There's northeast pollinator plants in Fairfax, Vermont. There's garden in the woods, of course, which is fantastic. And there is Bagley Palm perennials in Warner, New Hampshire. That's another brand new startup. And then a lot of people are going to Prairie Moon Nurseries for mail order native plants. Could you, are there any other places you know of where native gardeners could get native plants in the New England area? I know at least in, in the kind of Massachusetts area, there's a, an organization called Grow Native Massachusetts, which does an annual plant sale, which is a big you know, deal. Their, their annual plant sale is really quite impressive and definitely something worth looking into. I've been talking to a lot of um, kind of garden clubs and various other groups that have, have kind of started to get on the bandwagon where they will get together as a group and acquire a commercial account with someone like North Creek Nurseries that normally only sells to wholesalers. Um, this works well for Pinelands Nursery. They're in New Jersey. They're a, a native plant kind of restoration grade nursery. Um, and once you've got that commercial account and you know, when, when you get five or six or 10 people together, reaching a, you know, a, a $500 minimum is, is pretty easy you know, when you've got a number of people together. And all of a sudden you've got a, a new list of nurseries you can go through. I will also always push people to, to dip their hands into propagation. There's plenty of plants that are a real pain in the butt to, uh, to grow from seed, but there's a whole lot that are on the other end of the spectrum that are really quite easy. 
Um, and then you can start looking at a variety of other companies like Earned Seeds or Wild Seed Project um, up in Maine. They're a great organization. And you can start growing your own stuff. And sometimes this is as simple as taking a pot and sprinkling some seeds on top and leaving it outside for the winter and come spring, you've got new plants. There's other instances where certain species are really good for just throwing them right down on the landscape. Species like spotted bee balm or black-eyed Susan or lobelias. I mean, if you've got open soil and the right sort of moisture conditions, you rarely need to do much other than to just sprinkle seeds and, and make sure you know where it is in spring so you could, you know, care for it a little bit. Pretty much just weed anything out around it before it gets established. Um, but there's a variety of species that are really easy to grow yourself. Propagation has this kind of a, you know, a reputation for being difficult. And there's plenty of it that really is, but there's, there's also plenty that is not. And I'd love to see more people getting into it. The other thing that I'd recommend is if you're, if you do start getting into propagation and you say want, you know, 10 black eyed Susans, grow 50 of them. Cause then you've got 40 to trade with friends and other kind of, you know, folks who are, who are within this kind of, you know, plant spectrum. And, and there's nothing wrong with the barter system. It's alive and well in the plant world. So now the other thing that tends to confuse new people starting native gardening is the old fashioned standard horticultural zones just don't seem to apply to native plants. I know in your book, you mentioned the EPA's eco-regions of New England. What, what are the basic differences? Yeah, the nice thing is when you start working with native plants, you can kind of just forget all about this idea of hardiness. If it's a plant that's native in your area, it's hardy. That's just kind of part of the nativity of it. You can kind of stop worrying about whether or not something will survive the winter, because if it's not going to survive the winter, there's a pretty good chance it's not a native plant anyway. Ecoregions are kind of a, a different way of looking at trying to draw out range maps of species. The idea of plants following political lines just doesn't make any sense. You know, it's not like plants care about what state they're in or even, you know, their region from a political kind of point of view. And so ecoregions are based on a, a variety of different factors, um, rainfall patterns, soil structure, biological interactions. You know, they're, they're kind of a, a more plant-centric way of trying to define native ranges. Frankly, I think they're a pretty good, you know, way of, of getting a sense of as to whether or not a plant is native, but even there, they have their limitations. Um, nothing's quite perfect. These days, I've really been looking at native more from an ecological point of view. There was a book that uh, Doug Calamay and Rick Dark wrote called The Living Landscape, where they made a call for, for a definition of native based on ecological interactions. I think the words they used were, uh, you know, a plant that forms complex and essential relationships with the greater ecosystem. And frankly, I think that makes a lot more sense. It might mean there's some, you know, gray zone where you got to explore when you start getting into plants, but especially with a changing climate, the idea of saying a plant is native only if it happens to exist right here, right now, doesn't really fit when we're looking at plant migrations and habitat change. And, um, you know, even if the forest might look untouched, you've still got a different pH in the rain that there used to be. And you've got, you know, uh, obviously, glaciation has passed, but there's a lot of species that were pushed down south that are still working their way back up north. And it's kind of, uh, it's, it's interesting to start looking at ecological interactions to try and define native. I've never really been one to, to kind of give in to the, there's a lot of the, uh, I don't know how you'd put it, I've, I've heard them called native plant Nazis. People are very much purist about it. it, must be native to within, you know, 10 feet of where I'm standing or whatever their number is. And and frankly, I, I think it, it becomes a semantic argument that just kind of gets in the way of building habitat. You know, I really don't care how native a plant is by any specific definition. I care about building habitat. So if I've got a plant that is doing that on the landscape, it's native enough for me. Um, and that means that I can start planting some other species that don't actually naturally occur here, 
but you know, really could very well. One that I've been working with lately called Malus coronaria. It's the closest thing we've got to a native apple. It's called the sweet crab apple. I believe the most northerly natural population is in Pennsylvania. And if you stick that thing in Massachusetts, you've planted a plant that supports 290-something native Lepidoptera right here in Massachusetts. 290 is a madly respectable number. That's higher than a large amount of the plants that easily fall within a standard definition of native. Um, so I, I try not to get too caught up in pretty much a semantical argument and get more into what can I do on the landscape that builds habitat. That's always the goal. Um, I, I, frankly, I love to argue, um, but I want to argue with a reason. <laughs> Right. And of course, you know, you mentioned it, you know, the native plants are so important to the ecosystem and that you're actually creating habitat that benefits birds, other critters, you know, in nature. So is it important to slowly change your landscape from non-native to native? I mean, is there the risk you're going to destroy some part of the habitat unless you go very slowly? What would you recommend? Like just change a few plants every year until you get to 70% native? Well, it kind of depends on what you're starting with. You know, if your landscape is a bunch of boxwoods for Scythia and a whole lot of lawn, then, you know, you go as fast as you possibly can. And that might be the limiting factor is, you know, if, if you've got 10 acres to work with, trying to tackle 10 acres in one season is just, you know, you're setting yourself up for failure. Um, but frankly, if, uh, you know, a lot of times when I'm talking to people, if you've got a, a bunch of non-native plants in your gardens and you're, we're not talking about invasives, just say a non-native, non-harmful plant, um, you know, sure, replace them with natives. First thing I'm going after, though, is the invasive species and the lawn. Um, you know, that's just a, a wasted opportunity. If you've got some kids that actually play soccer on your lawn, fine. You've got a good reason for holding on to it. But the majority of us just have this thing in the front of our house that really doesn't actually do anything for us other than to take up space. And it sure does not build habitat. Where We're talking about non-native turf grasses um, that often require large amounts of inputs in terms of water and fertilizer and pesticides. And God forbid they actually start growing, we break out the mowers and cut them down to size so they can never actually produce a real root system anyway. Um, I think that's a really good starting point for people. But again, even with that, because most of us have a, a reasonably sized lawn, I'm trying to tackle it all at once. I, I, I want people to take things systematically so that they don't get overwhelmed so they can see successes and move progressively from one spot to the next and start to kind of you know expand in a way where you actually watch your goals being reached you know i have a natural tendency to want to uh you know kind of tackle it all at once and then you start 30 projects and don't finish any of them so it's it you know you kind of do what works for you but if you've got a habitat that is you know already pretty well planted with natives then it makes sense to go slow and kind of start adding more you know in that case, it's more about adding as much diversity as possible. When you've got a landscape that is dominated by non-native species, then full speed ahead to your physical limitations. <laughs> right. So what would you suggest? Let's say someone has a lawn and um, they just want to kill it and turn it into something beneficial to the wildlife and the ecosystem. How, what's the best way to go about that? You know, again, it'll depend a little bit on situations, but I think the tool that I use most often is to smother the lawn, whether that means collecting your cardboard boxes from, you know, the various kind of deliveries or going to the local hardware store and saying, can I root around in your cardboard dumpster? More often than not, I go to the local hardware store and I pick up a product called Ramboard. It's a product that painters use to protect floors from like drips when they're painting inside. And it's nothing more than a roll of cardboard. And what's nice about it is it allows you to um, kind of roll out these large sections that you can kind of do some kind of, you know, a lawn smothering 
in a very quick period of time. So I'll lay that out on the ground and then I'll top it off with some organic matter depending on what I'm trying to build in the area. If you've got thin soils and you want to add some richness, now's a chance to add compost or wood chips or leaves or whatever you might have. Um, and if you've got thin soils and you want to keep them thin, because frankly, our, our, you know, the New England meadows within thin soils are really quite phenomenal, then you can be a little bit lighter in what you add and maybe just stick to topsoil instead of throwing a whole bunch of compost in there. But the nice thing about using cardboard, whether it be rainboard or, or any other cardboard product, is it's fully biodegradable. You know, skip the glossy stuff, skip the painted stuff, skip the stuff that's covered in a bunch of glues. Um, but that doesn't limit you by much. And then you don't have to dig it all out. You know, I don't find digging to be particularly therapeutic or enjoyable. Maybe if I'm planting a couple plants, that's kind of fun. But when I look at the amount of lawn I've got in my new place and the amount I want to kill, smothering makes a lot of sense to me. Another good option, if you've got it, if you've got good sun, you can go with the solarizing route. You know, clear plastic that can pretty much be used to bake the soil. Um, that's got certain advantages and definitely some disadvantages. Advantage-wise, it does a good job of not only killing off the plants, but also starting to kill off the seed bank. So if you've got invasive species in the area, that's quite an advantage. Downside is it's going to get pretty close to sterilizing your soil, and then you've got dead soil. Um, so what I always recommend is after a solarizing project, bring in some compost, start to kind of get that soil back to life. Um, you've also now got what amounts to usually a single-use plastic that you end up having to throw out. You might be able to get away with using it, you know, two or three times if you're lucky, but you end up creating a lot of garbage that way. And the smothering, on the other hand, is fully biodegradable. And I think that's why I tend to go that route more often than not. But I wouldn't rule out solarizing, especially when dealing with invasive species, perhaps within a lawn area. It's still a useful tool. And then from there, it's just a matter of planting, whether it be planting plugs, planting pots, spreading seed, you know, this is where the, the kind of the sky's the limit and you do whatever works for you on your landscape and whatever you might want to introduce into the area. There's a lot of things that you can replace the lawn with. Um, you know, you can build gardens, which is fantastic. You can build a meadow, which is fantastic. Or you can just replace it with another lawn that's not really a lawn, but is much more ecologically viable. If you want something that still looks like a lawn, I recommend Carex Pennsylvanica all the time. It's one of our native sedges. It's a rhizomatous grower. It naturally grows under pine trees, so it does not need you know, kind of rich soils. It doesn't need full sun. It doesn't need, you know, any sort of excess water. In fact, in most cases, you just water to get it established and then forget all about it. And if you actually want to mow it, you only need to mow it once a year to keep it short. It puts on all of its growth in spring. Though my personal favorite is definitely the wild strawberries. I'll do strawberry lawns over a traditional lawn any day of the week. They've got the advantage of being quite vigorous, which means they can tolerate the sort of abuse that lawns tend to need to be able to tolerate in terms of foot traffic, and in my case, digging dogs and chickens. And they've got the advantage of being extremely ecologically beneficial. Um, they're the second most valuable herbaceous plant within the New England area um, from an ecological point of view. And they produce a fantastic berry. I just, I mean, I love the fact that I can go onto my lawn in the middle of summer and just start eating, you know, strawberries. That's just a wonderful added bonus. I mean, in a traditional lawn, for God's sakes, don't eat anything that's growing in it. You don't know what's been put on that lawn. Um, when we start kind of flipping it over to strawberry lawns, it's the complete other end of the spectrum. It's really quite nice. Now, I understand you created a native database or native plant database. So let's say someone wants to put native plants in their lawn. How does that database work? Yeah, the database is great because it allows you to kind of answer the question yourself as to what should I plant where. I built it back when I was working at New England Wildflower Society. They're now Native Plant Trust. 
and you, the database is still being maintained by them. I use it regularly, and every time I go on, there's new pictures and new additions to it. You can find a link to it through their website, or if you hop onto my website, there's a link to it as well. And then what it's got is it's got a series of pretty much categories and areas where you can just kind of throw a check into a box. So, for example, you'll see something like soil moisture, and it'll say dry, average, or wet. You'll see tolerances like deer or rabbit resistance, drought tolerance, salt tolerant. Um, I've got a section in there about edibles, um, sun exposure, all these sorts of things. And so you can kind of pick, okay, I've got a, a dry, sunny area. I need something that's salt tolerant and is deer tolerant. And you punch in those things and you hit search and it'll drop out a list of plants for you. Um, and that list of plants comes with pictures and you can click on the individual ones to learn the rest about that species. And so it makes it very, very, you know, user-friendly in terms of um, getting into this native plant thing. I've got a landscape. I know what my landscape is, but I don't know what plants would grow well there. This database lets you answer that question yourself. And then from there, it's just a matter of, you know, finding the plants. In some cases, that's quite easy. In other cases, a little more challenging. We were talking earlier about the landscape industry and something that I, I think is really is improving wonderfully is in the past, you go to a standard nursery, you might find 10 native plants. Um, you know, these days, the amount of less common native plants that are becoming more common is really quite nice to see. I remember in the past, you know, if you wanted to file wild geranium, you pretty much went to garden in the woods. Now you can find that plant at, I saw it at Home Depot the other day, which frankly amazed me. And it's nice to start seeing those sorts of species showing up in more regular nurseries, because then you, you know, it'd be wonderful to not think about native at all. Just go to the nursery, buy the plants you're looking for, and hey, they happen to all build a habitat. You know, wouldn't that be just the perfect world? And I'd like to think that at some point we're at least going to get closer to that. It's nice to see us getting there. But I, I've been talking about things like spotted bee bomb for the past, you know, 10 years. And 10 years ago, people said, what? Spotted bee bomb? Never heard of that one. Now I talk about spotted bee bomb and I say, who in the audience knows about that plant? And most of the hands go up. And that's really wonderful. It's good to see, you know, these unique plants starting to show up because a lot of them can grow in the sort of areas that are a bit more obscure. You know, if you've got good soils, good moisture, you know, kind of good sun exposure, you really don't need me telling you what to plant. You know, you got lots of options. It's when you've got the dry acidic shade or the full sun. You know, we have a lot of glacial soils around here. So a lot of thin soils, gravelly, gritty, sandy, low organic matter. Or maybe you've got an invasive species you're battling and you want something that can push against it. That's when you need the plants that are not within that standard 50. Um, you need some of the more obscure ones that are becoming less obscure, which frankly, I think is wonderful. That is great. Now, what about edible gardening? What if I wanted to turn my lawn into an edible garden? How would I get started? Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's one of my real passions is kind of edible gardening. I mean, we already talked about the strawberries, and that's a fantastic option for kind of lawn replacements. Um, another one I've been doing recently is to pretty much uh, just lay out a strip of that rain board, um, keeping it narrow with lawn in between, whatever that lawn might be, and plant out rows of uh, raspberries. Nice thing about raspberries in a strip like that is as they start trying to run out of that strip, you just kind of hit them with the, the lawnmower on those edges and kind of keep them somewhat contained. Raspberries, you know, growing like raspberries tend to kind of run on you. And it's nice to be able to manage them with a mower instead of with, you know, the pruners. And that tends to require, a, you know, blood donation to your garden. The reason I've been kind of pushing for edibles lately, not only am I just always hungry, which frankly I am, but there's some really good ecological arguments for growing more food. Forgetting the idea of native for just a moment, um, one of the major kind of losses of habitat in, in this country and frankly around the world is due to kind of large scale industrialized agriculture. And so the more we can kind of push back against that and start to decentralize our food system, the better. 
I mean, we, we tend to think about, you know, the rainforest being cleared for palm oil, but we forget about the fact that we're still clearing prairie for cattle or corn production right here in America. So the more food we're all growing, the less reliant we are on this kind of large scale industrial agriculture, the better. And that doesn't only mean growing your own food, that means supporting your local, you know, organic multi-crop kind of farms. You know, this is definitely a part of the solution as well. Right there, you know, growing your own tomatoes or growing your own corn is a small step for, you know, against habitat loss. It becomes an added bonus when the plants you're growing are also native species and not only reduce habitat loss, but build habitat in place. And that's where those native raspberries, those native strawberries, um, blueberries, service berries, fiddleheads and ramps and Solomon's seal and Solomon's plume for your shady gardens. I mean, there's, we've got native hazelnuts and hickories and pawpaws are absolutely phenomenal. I mean, there's a big list of native edible species that we could be growing. And not only does this do all those kind of great ecological things, but frankly, they taste phenomenal. You know, there's an argument for the blueberries you grow tasting better than the blueberries you get at the farmer's market, but there's also an argument for you're probably not seeing pawpaws at the farmer's market, or at least not at the supermarket, maybe at the farmer's market if you have a really good one. And so there's flavors that we can grow ourselves that you're not going to get otherwise. It's becoming a little more common to see something like fiddleheads or ramps around if you happen to be in an area where there's a kind of a foodie movement. But for the rest of us, you know, ramps, they're, they're slow and, you know, quite wonderful. But something like fiddleheads, those are easy as pie. You know, if you've got moisture, you can grow them. And I don't care what your sun conditions are, whether it's full sun or dense shade, you can grow fiddleheads as long as it's not dry. And there's a lot of other food that's really, frankly, very easy to grow. The nice thing about a lot of our native edibles from a, a human you know, growing point of view is that the vast majority of them, in fact, all of them, as far as I can think of it, are perennial plants. So they may take a couple of years to really settle in and start producing, but to some extent, it's a planted and then forget about it and then just start harvesting when they're ready and never stop. And that's really, you know, I like that. Um, you know, I, I, when I'm being nice to myself, I call myself a smart gardener, but half the time it's really, I'm just a lazy gardener. I don't want to have to replant my annual vegetable crops every single year. I do it for a number of them because frankly, you know, brown cherries are really tasty and worth growing, but it's nice to plant that, um, you know, my, my allium sternum, nodding onion, one of our native onions. I planted that 10 years ago. I've been eating it for the past eight and I'm not going to stop. I don't do anything to it other than to harvest, occasionally grab some seed if I want to grow some new ones. You know, it's really, really easy. Also happens to be a beautiful plant that is a part of the ecosystem. So it's really kind of a for us and them sort of thing where humans are benefiting directly, but we're also helping the ecosystem by reducing habitat loss and in many cases, building ecosystem right in place. Kind of a win, win, win. I like it. The other great thing about native plants, including the edibles, is they can handle pretty extreme conditions. Like we, we just had those drought-like conditions in New England this past summer, which is a little, was a little scary. I don't remember it being that bad. But the native plants, all of my native plants did fine. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing I always tell people when they ask me what they should plant is plant plants that grow well in the conditions you have. Um, you know, when I first got into landscaping, I was in the kind of the mow and blow crews. I learned a lot of what not to do before I learned what to do. And if you had crappy soils, we were bringing in compost, we were adding an irrigation system, we were using lots of mulch, you know, we were bringing in all these inputs to try and get something to grow in an area where, frankly, it doesn't want to grow. You know, when you start thinking about things more holistically, it becomes, okay, I got crappy soils, fine. I got about 300 species that will grow well in those crappy soils, and then you stop calling them crappy. You just call them thin and different, or maybe they're really shady. Let's stop trying to plant sun plants in the shade and vice versa. And that makes it much easier. 
all the climate predictions are showing us that, you know, they, they can't really truly figure out what's going to happen in spring and fall, but everyone's agreeing on summer drought being a more common thing coming about. Um, you know, I, up until this past year, I would have said 2016 was the worst drought I dealt with. I'm not sure if this year was worse or better or the same, but either way, it was pretty awful. Um, and I have a number of, you know, areas that we planted out that frankly didn't miss a beat this year. And part of that is, is planting a good diversity of species. You know, if you've got the ability to plant five species in a place that you might have planted two before, plant those five because maybe two of them won't do so well that next year, but three others will. And once you start getting a lot of species into place, you can find that that one garden might look very different from year to year to year, but it always looks good. You know, you get a wet year and all of a sudden the, the, the ironweeds are really doing well. You get a dry year and you're like, where are all my ironweeds? Oh my God, but look at the goldenrods. They look fantastic. You know, and, and there's really nothing wrong with that. The idea that the garden needs to look the same as the day you put it in is, is just not necessary. Instead, you know, kind of get a good diversity in there. I think diversity of, of species is a really good way to combat the challenges on the landscape. Um, you know, diversity leads to resiliency and we're going to need more of that in the future. Right. And also, it's so vital to plant for the entire life cycle of our pollinators. It's pretty easy to plant summer blooms. There's lots of good plants that bloom in the summer, so I, I tend to find myself not really thinking all that much about it. Um, really make sure that your, your early spring and your late kind of fall are really covered. Um, and, and don't forget the value of woody species. We tend to think a lot about the kind of herbaceous layer, but when I'm thinking early spring, things like, you know, native willows comes right to mind. I wish everyone were planting black willow. I think it's a wonderful species if you've got the right space for it. Our native spice bush is a really good option for those kind of early spring times. We tend to kind of think immediately of the spring ephemerals, and there's no reason not to. They're fantastic, but don't forget the woody species. On the far kind of other end of the spectrum, getting into fall, what pops into my mind immediately is asters and goldenrods. And there are, frankly, a lot of different species within that group of two genera. Now the, gold, the asters are like six genera, but either way, there's lots of different species. A um, lot of good ones to choose from. Goldenrods tend to get a bad rap as being too weedy or causing hay fever, neither of which is really all that fair. There are species that are most certainly weedy and probably would not fit well in a small space, but there's lots of other species that are fantastic for small spaces or medium spaces or anything in between. And the only reason they get linked with hay fever is because they bloom at the same time of year as ragweed. Goldenrods can't cause hay fever. They're, they're insect pollinated flower. The pollen's way too heavy to be floating around on the air, which is how we get hay fever. You know, they need a bee to come visit them. So we tend to just make the link because you don't notice the ragweed in bloom. You know, you don't need to attract the wind. It's just there. So there's these small flowers, usually green or creamy or sort of thing you don't notice. Um, so we're all sniffling and we see goldenrod blooming and we just put two and two together. But goldenrods are, are probably one of my most used, you know, genera out there. There's some phenomenal species. If we're going to just kind of name one, because everyone always asks me what goldenrod to plant. And again, plant for your conditions. You know, if you've got certain conditions, you want to plant that one. But if you've got to look up one, look up the downy goldenrod, um, Solidago puberula. Uh, that is one of my favorite species. Grows well in full sun, will do a little bit of shade. I've seen it growing on kind of trail edges where it's, you know, getting some more sun, but it's still in, in decent shade. We'll do bone dry. We'll do kind of average garden soils. It's a wand-shaped flower, so it stands erect instead of nodding over like a lot of the other goldenrods. That just makes it look a little different, and I like that. And it's, it's really extremely tolerant of a range of conditions, vigorous enough to do fine in a typical garden setting, but not so vigorous that it's going anywhere on you. It's just kind of that happy medium. A really nice one. And if you've got shade, go for Solidago casea, the reef goldenrod. That's a wonderful shade species. 
we have a one acre property here. I've, I've got it in about seven or eight different locations. You know, and I just plunk it in the soil that's in the ground. I don't dig anything up. I don't turn anything over. And I think that's one of the great things about native gardening is I think, I think your traditional non-native perennial gardener thinks, okay, I've got to get, I've got to get the spade. I've got to get the pitchfork. I have to dig everything up, turn everything over. I have to put in compost. Then I have to let it sit, mix it all together. Then I can put my plants in the ground. I mean, natives just, they do great in just, I want to use the word plain old soil, but plain old soil is, it's kind of negative. <laughs> I mean, the thing about that. plain old soil is there's a hundred different versions of it, and there's a native plant that'll grow in every one of them. And in fact, there's hundreds of plants that'll grow in every one of them. Um, and that's a nice thing about it. You really don't need to truck in anything. You don't need to add water or nutrients or organic matter or fertilizer or definitely pesticides or any of that. These plant plants that would naturally grow there. The tolerance of many of our native plant species for differing conditions is really quite broad. You know, there are certain species like the um, you know fringe gentian is one that I grow at, at Norcross, and it has a very narrow range. You know, it, it needs a very specific site to do well. Um, and if you've got that site, you can plant this phenomenal species. But then you've got something like the solidago that we were talking about, the, the, you know, the wreath goldenrod, or something like um, a number of our different asters um, or, or viburnums, I think, are a wonderful thing. People ask me which viburnum to plant, and I say, I don't know which plant to plant. You know, what are your conditions? We've got viburnums that'll do sunny dry, sunny wet, shady dry, shady wet, typical gardens. Pick the species that'll do well in your conditions. They're frankly all wonderful species. Um, and if you've got one that'll do well for you, chances are you probably have three or four that'll do well for you. And then you can really work with what your conditions are, are kind of offering. And the amount of work that is required for a plant that is well situated is, is really minimal compared to one that needs a lot of additional inputs. The property we just bought has 19 acres. Um, and the place where I work, I manage 75 acres. We really don't do high maintenance gardens. We don't have the time for it. Um, we're trying to plant landscapes that are going to be as close to self-sufficient as possible. My goal is to get them to the point where I can pretty much abandon them and know they're going to be just fine. Um, and that means planting plants that would grow well in the conditions that are present. Um, it's, it really makes it a lot easier and it's not something you need to have 75 acres to start doing. You can do this on your quarter acre property and it works just as well there. Now I know you mentioned you're doing home scale homesteading at your new property. What does that entail? Well, at the moment, it entails mostly killing Vinca. We just moved into this place, so we, it's probably, you know, we got a lot of work to do. Um, it's, so we're in the early stages, which means killing things like Vinca, which is not considered invasive, but is definitely taking over large portions of our area. It also means going after true invasive species. We've got a lot of autumn olive on our site. We've got barberry in some of our wet areas. So we're starting to kind of remove the bad stuff. We're also looking, in our case, at our canopy. We've got a pretty even-aged canopy, and we'd like it to be uneven aged. An uneven aged canopy, especially with some kind of cleared areas that are going back towards an early successional stage is really good bird habitat. And we'd like to provide that as much as we can. Looking further down the line, we're gonna start diversifying the species here. We're gonna be bringing in a variety of different native species that would naturally grow here. For many of them probably already are. We've been finding some cool stuff out here. And then from the human point of view, the homesteading point of view, we're gonna start growing food a large majority of that will be the native food, blueberries, service berries, raspberries, you know, all the stuff that we talked about earlier. Um, we're also gonna have an area where we'll do our kind of our, our annual, you know, vegetable beds. 
um, an area where we can grow our potatoes and our tomatoes and our, you know, sweet potatoes and ground cherries. We're big fans of ground cherries. We grow lots of those um, and a variety of other things like that. We also raise um, chickens and rabbits. Um, we've been thinking about bringing sheep in, although that's probably coming further down the line. And every two days we decide, you know, forget the sheep. Let's do goats. I really like goats. Oh, but the sheep and, you know, we're trying to take it piecemeal and slowly just so that we can figure things out instead of jumping into too much too quickly. For us, early stages is editing out the junk. Vinca and invasive species and English ivy. We got a lot of work ahead of us, but we're not going anywhere. So it's something that I can really look forward to in the future. Yeah, Sandra. Ironically enough, that's the one we don't have. I'm planning on bringing in the Allegheny Spurge, Pachycentra procumbens, but we don't have any of the Japanese Spurge, which is kind of interesting. It's like they, they did, the previous owners, they, they built some, it's a beautiful landscape that they built here, but they had a love affair with Vinca, or maybe the Vinca just did what it did and grew from a small spot to a very large spot. That's battle number one. We've probably got a solid acre of Vinca to remove. We're not digging it up. We're not tearing it out. That's way more work than we can handle. We're going to do the same thing we were describing for lawns. Ram board, smothering, you know, covering it over, letting it kind of smother out, and then eventually, you know, planting on top of it. Does that work with Pachysandra? Can you use the boards to smother it out? Yes. The only thing that you want to do with Pachysandra, with Vinca, with any of those creepers, is if your patch is 10 feet square, you want to kind of smother out 15 feet square. Make sure it can't kind of sneak out of the edges. Make sure that you've got some overlap between the pieces. You know, those, those kind of common sense things. If we're talking invasive species, I've done plenty of smothering with invasive species, and I tend to use, you know, it's, it's often called lasagna mulching, where you'll do that first layer of ram board and then some organic matter. Then I'll do a second layer of ram board and some organic matter and really kind of bulk it up heavily. For lawns and vinca, you can do a single layer and, you know, just some new organic stuff to kind of hold it in place and then start decomposing. But when it comes to the invasives, you kind of double, triple, quadruple it up to really get on top of it. Keeping in mind also that, you know, for vinca, pachysandra, not a big deal. They don't produce a lot of seed. But if you're talking about something like garlic mustard that you want to smother, you can smother it all and it's all going to die. Um, but that seed bank will still be there underneath. So if you come by next year and dig a hole in it to plant new plants, you want to keep an eye on that hole because there's a good chance you just brought seed to the surface. It's going to be exposed to light. It's going to germinate and you're going to have a small patch of garlic mustard coming back to life on you. You know, last time I saw garlic mustard, it takes somewhere like 10 to 12 years for the seeds to really finally, you know, die off on you. So it's, it's still a fine strategy. Just keep in mind your seed bank. The nice thing about, I work with a lot of native plants that are very good seeders. And that means that my seed bank, you know, I, I dig up a hole somewhere to plant a new tree and all of a sudden I've got new columbines coming up or new black-eyed Susans or, or new cardinal flowers. And it's like, okay, all of my weeds are not weeds. They're good plants. And then it's just a matter of editing and saying, you know what? I've got 3,000 black-eyed Susans right there. I don't need 3,010. I'm going to remove those and plant in the geranium maculatum that I wanted to put in that place. I was going to say with the pack of Sandra, it's sort of like that old Star Trek episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. You know, I pull one pack of sander out and 10 more take its place. The problem with the pulling is you break off the root system and then it re-sprouts. And if you keep on top of it, it's a good strategy. You'll definitely get on top of it. Smothering means you don't have to really worry about that. Um, it, it really is a, a good strategy for removal of unwanted plants. The downside to it is it's hard to do on this small scale. If you've got some bad plants mixed in with some good plants, smothering is going to clear the whole area. So in that case, you want to stick to your pulling strategies. Um, but in my case, where you've got an acre of vinca, oh, forget pulling it. We're just covering it all with, you know, ram board and, and letting it die. Well, Dan, this has been great. I think we could probably 
I, I was going to ask you to just give us some information about your book and your website. I know you've got YouTube videos. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about that we can throw in the, this show? Uh, the last thing that I'll mention is, is come visit me over at Norcross Wildlife Sanctuary. Um, I've been there for a little less than two years now, but it is a phenomenal site. We've got over 8,000 acres. There's 75 acres at the center that are open to the public. Come in Tuesday through Saturday, at least through the 25th we're open. So a couple more days, but come by in spring. And what's kind of nice about it is if you're struggling on your landscape with what to do, we've got examples of every extreme landscape you can think of. And we, we've got what we did to try and colonize that area. We've got a native edible garden that we just put in. We've got an area in a recovered gravel pit, which is just bone dry sand gravel with a thriving landscape. We've got pitch pine habitats. We've got swamps and bogs and pretty much everything in between. So if you want to kind of see these various different species on site and get a sense of what you might be able to do on your own landscape, come take a look at what we've been doing and drop by and say hi and, you know, let's talk plants. I love talking plants. I want to thank Dan Jaffe Wilder for joining us today and for giving us all of that great information. Again, the title of his book is Native Plants for New England Gardens published by Globe Pequot Press. You can find the book on Amazon.com, or you can order it through the Native Plant Trust, or you can buy it through Dan's website. His website is dantjaffe.com. Also, check out his Instagram account. He has some really wonderful photos of native plants at Dan Jaffe Wilder. Put his name in YouTube, and you will also pull up some really nice videos about native gardening. And his native plant database can be reached by going to his website, dantjaffe.com, and clicking at the top right of his homepage. It's really great information. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.